Good morning. Nice to see you here. Please open your Bibles with me. If you're using your Pew Bible, it's page 841. It's Mark chapter 6. We're going to be going through verses 14 through 29. If you brought your own Bible, you're on your own, but I'm sure you can handle that. Let me read the passage starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and it w I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. When you came in this morning, you all received a bulletin. Pull it out. If you look at the top here in the front, it has five emphases or distinctives of this church. Trust in God's sovereignty. We use the doctrines of grace for that. Commitment to scripture. We use expositional preaching. God-centered and Christ-exalted worship. We like to sing psalms. And spiritual songs, we have a lot of hymns. Praise God. Love for the local church. 
practicing the one another's. That's an, another whole sermon, but we'll touch on that. We want to be gospel-driven, engaging the lost and making disciples. Think about that as we move along. If you agree that we have been engaged, been engaged in Christ-exalting worship already this morning, then I submit to you that we will touch on all five of these today. Specifically, as we work through this passage in Mark, expositionally, we are going to see God's sovereignty clearly at work, which will lead to our response to apply Scripture in practicing caring for each other, those one another's I talked about. Finally, as we practice the exhorting and loving one another, we will be prepared and motivated to reach out to the lost and to make disciples. Be it Sunday school that we have a little later today, midweek studies, or engagement in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. You're probably saying, David, how, how do you get all that from a story about the beheading of John the Baptist? Well, hang on. We have lots of Scripture cross-references today, lots of rulers named Herod. We have a long introduction because we need to get the background so we understand what we're going through. First of all, we need to get to know King Herod. Cassie, can we? There we go. This is going to take a bit because there are lots of Herods, and it's easy to get confused, and I don't want you to be confused. First of all, which King Herod are we talking about? This is just part of King Herod's family tree, it's quite extensive. Every time that we turn the page, we see another Herod. There are multiple Herods, multiple Philips, Miriamnes, Cleopatras, and multiple Salomes. You can't tell the players without a program. Just to let you know, these circles here, these are the Herods, there are King Herods that we see in the Bible. Let's start with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the patriarch of this family tree. He was an Adamic Jew. That means he was a descendant of Esau, who founded the nation of Edom. We see that in Genesis 25. Remember, there was Abraham and then Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was one of those sons. But Esau left the promised land and went to the southwest of the Dead Sea and founded the land of Edom. What does that have to do with Herod the Great? Well, this is going to seem like a jump, but if you're familiar with Hanukkah, remember that that Jewish um, celebration where they talk about having oil, only enough for one day, but they lit it and it lasted for eight. Well, that was in the middle of the Maccabean Revolt. They were throwing off foreign invaders. In the process of that, they conquered Edom to the south, and they forcibly 
converted the leaders of Edom to Judaism. Those were Herod's ancestors, only a few generations before that. So Herod was converted to, his, his uh, ancestors were converted to Jews, like I think it's his great-great-grandfather. And Herod worked his way to becoming the graces of a guy we know as Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar personally assigned Herod to be the procurator, which is a Latin word for one of the types of rulers they have, of the Judean and Galilean area. Actually, um, a little, little bit more th- than that. How do we know Herod the Great? How can you kind of hang on to him? Remember when Jesus was born and then the Magi came a couple years later? The Magi were supposed to go back to Herod the Great, but they were warned in a dream to depart by another route. And then Mary and Joseph and Jesus were also warned in a dream and they fled to Egypt. Right before Herod massacred all the male children who were two years old and under, that's the Herod the Great. What a legacy, right? Herod tried to pacify the Jews. He rebuilt the temple. That's a great thing, right? He built two cities. It didn't work. He was viewed as a false Jew and a tool of the Romans. Herod had eight wives. These two, three, four, these five of them are not all of them. There's three more that we don't even have room to see on here. He killed two of his sons. At death, he had this large area that he was administrating for Caesar. And he was so popular with Caesar that he got to divide it. He divided Judea and Samaria and Edomia, which is that Edom part, with Archelaus. Where is Archelaus? Right here. With Archelaus. And Archelaus was, you can remember him. Remember we have Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Egypt, hiding from Herod the Great? Well, when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, the Holy Spirit told them they can return, and they went and dwelled in Nazareth. That's Archelaus. He was, he was safer than Herod the Great. The other part, just to be complete, Herod Antipas got Galilee and Persia, That's this guy, and we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about him today. He is also known as Herod the Tetrarch, in case you hear that term. Not to be confused with Philip the Tetrarch, also known as Philip II. And he, let me look at my notes, I think he's actually off the page here. Yeah, he's off the page, so don't worry about that. And then finally, Philip the Tetrarch had Northeast Jordan, and then Salome the First, who was a sister of Herod the Great, she got the area that used to be occupied by the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath, those Philistines. 
and then a couple cities north of Jericho. A weird distribution. So let's get into the people we need for our story a little bit closer. Herod, Philip I, there's this guy here. He's referred to in our text as the brother of Antipas. So Herod Philip, son of, the, his mother was Miriamne II, as opposed to Miriamne I, just, two diff, just to distinguish them. Herod the Great had two wives named Miriamne. His brother was Herod Antipas. His mother was Mouthrace, all sons of Herod the Great. Antipas was married to Herodias, who was daughter of Aristobulus. So Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, and we'll see how she plays into this, this story. She had, they had a daughter together named Salome, who's down here. So this starts out as being a family. We know her, her name is Salome because of Josephus, who was a, a historian. Salome means peace, and we'll see in our text if you agree whether or not that's an appropriate name. Well, apparently, Herodias, not apparently, we know that Herodias got tired of Herod Philip. She divorced him, and she married Antipas, which makes Salome stepdaughter of Antipas. Are we confused yet? That's why we need a program to see what's going on here. Speaking of Herod Antipas, we talked about he became the ruler of Galilee and Perea. Pilate sent Jesus to Antipas right before he was crucified. Let me just talk to you a little bit about that. I'm going to flip over to Luke 23. And that's interesting. I can't see the references. Okay. And I'm reading in 23.6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, meaning Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. We see a little bit of Herod. He likes talking with these spiritual men. Because he had heard about him, Jesus, and Herod was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length. But he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So that is... Herod Antipas. Jesus did not have a very high opinion of Herod Antipas. In fact, Jesus, we see, talked to him in Luke 13, saying, 
At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod, Antipas, wants to kill you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. You can see that Jesus knew who Herod was. He knew his character. As I said, Herod Antipas married Herodias. That makes her his stepdaughter. And, I'm sorry, that makes him stepfather to Salome. Herodias was both the stepniece and sister-in-law and second wife to to Antipas. Step-sister... Niece, I'm sorry, because Herodias married Philip, that makes makes her stepsister, stepniece by way of Aristopolis, and also makes her the second wife. Very complicated. Finally, just briefly, we have down here Herod Agrippa. We'll, he'll come into play just a little bit later. He was the grandnephew of Herod Philip I and Herod Antipas. We refer to him briefly. And thank you for bearing with me in this uh, long graphic chart. Thanks, Cassie. So now we know the players. Let's read in. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But Herod heard of it. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So this is King Herod, this is Antipas, and I will probably refer to him as Antipas most of the time, just so you know I'm not talking about one of these other hundreds of Herods we just talked about. King Herod heard of it. Well, what is the it that he heard of? Let's just back up a little bit earlier in Mark. Elliot talked with us last week about what Jesus did when he sent out his disciples I will summarize here from Mark 6, 7, and 12, and 13. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits, skipping. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You see, they were proclaiming repentance. They casted out demons and anointed and healed the sick. Let me read for us from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea, And all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Sounds a little similar. John the Baptist, Jesus, preaching repentance. Some said, this is Elijah. Why would they say that? Well, first of all, we need to remind ourselves who Elijah was. He was a prophet of Israel. He was the one who called down fire on the altar. And he upstages 150 of the prophets of Baal. He has them all killed. We see that in 1 Kings 18. The thing we want to think about for our sermon today is he was taken up to heaven. So I'm going to flip over to the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 2. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Elisha was Elijah's protege, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Sounds like a name for a movie, right? And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and cried, My father, my father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. In addition, Elijah was prophesied to return before the day of the Lord comes. Where do we find that? We find that in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 4, which is the last chapter in Malachi. So it's near the very end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus confirmed that Elijah had come. In fact, John the Baptist had fulfilled this, and I'm flipping over to Matthew 17. I did say there was going to be a lot of cross-references today, right? And I'm reading in, chapter, in verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus was clear about who that was. Well, what about in our passage, the people? And Antipas saying, Oh, this is John the Baptist who's been raised. Well, John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. We heard David Bauman read about that today in our scripture reading. He was preaching repentance. 
He drew huge crowds into the wilderness. We saw that in Mark 1. The it that Herod heard of in our passage in verse 14 was the message of repentance Jesus instructed to be preached. It sounds a lot like John, right? Both are preaching, repentance, both are drawing large crowds. But Jesus starts his ministry right after John the Baptist's arrest. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We saw Antipas clearly interested in the spiritual things. Antipas was immersed in John, in John the Baptist's return. He thought John the Baptist was resurrected and somehow embodied in this Jesus. The message, repent, was and the huge crowds, and now miracles. Wow, he's thinking, what's going on? Maybe it's the spirit of John the Baptist in Jesus. Well, why such a specific interest? Reading in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So now we get back to our story. Recall that Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus by Meramne I, was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Remember that? She married her uncle, Herod Philip I, daughter or son of Meramne II, and she divorced Herod Philip I and married Antipas, the son of Mouthrace. Moving on to 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We just talked about John the Baptist was preaching repentance. He publicly condemns this marriage. What guts? He calls for the royalty to repent. Who does that? Why? Repent of what? Well, there are three things. In Leviticus 18, we see the following. None of you shall approach anyone of his close relations to uncover their nakedness. You know what we're talking about here, right? I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister's. For she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. There is a prohibition on uncle, niece, or aunt, nephew, marriage. That's what they were doing. But that's not all. Also in the law, in Leviticus 20, we see the brother's wife. Except in special circumstances, you're not allowed to do that. Leviticus 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. The special circumstances did not apply here. Two strikes. Finally, in Deuteronomy 24, 
a wife may not divorce her husband. Only the husband can divorce his wife. Herodias is criticized for using her governmental privilege of being able to divorce her husband over the authority in God's law when she divorced her husband. This played right into the fears and doubts and anger and criticism of the Jewish people. This, he's, he's a Jew by name only charge. He was just reinforcing. So in verse 19, we pick it up. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So the result was that Herodias didn't like being called out in public. She developed a grudge against John the Baptist, which turned into a death wish for him. But Antipas, her husband, prevented Herodias from acting on it. Why did Antipas intervene? He knew that John the Baptist was a holy man. He kept John the Baptist safe by putting him in prison. That doesn't sound too cool. But ostensibly, it's out of the reach of his wife. If John the Baptist is roaming out freely, she can hire people, she can get people to kill him. At least in prison, Antipas can put things into place to protect John the Baptist. Besides, Antipas would go and listen to John the Baptist gladly. He was interested. He didn't always understand, but he liked to go and listen. So, Antipas was in a little quandary here. I want what I want, but God forbids it. Yet, I'm interested in God. I like to go listen to John the Baptist. I like spiritual things. But I will still do what I want to do. Yet, I can't shake the voice of God that's speaking to me. I listen to God, but you know what? It never gets into my heart. I do what I want. Wow. But you know, it runs in the family. Fast forward um, a few decades. Paul is before Herod Agrippa, the grand nephew of Antipas. And we read in Acts 26 that Agrippa said to Paul, after Paul had preached to him in his defense about Jesus Christ, in a short time, Paul, would you, pre- would you persuade me to be a Christian? We know that he didn't accept it. He did not become a Christian. He kept Paul in prison. It runs in the family. Many today trust Jesus in this same way. They know something about him. Many hold him to be a prophet, a good man, a good teacher. They follow Christ's example whenever it's not inconvenient. They listen to his teaching and really intend to follow him, yet they really don't take it to heart. I'm saying they, 
But is there a situation that's applicable that maybe I should be saying we? I certainly know I should be saying I. There are times when I don't listen and take it to heart because I know what's right to do and still I continue to sin. Maybe that's some of you. Sadly, there's instances when I disobey. Is it the same with you? If so, Scripture provides a prescription. Acknowledge our wrong, our wrong attitudes, our wrong thoughts, our wrong actions. Agree that they're wrong. Confess them to God and admit to Him what we've done. Ask for a change character. We don't want to repeat that. If I harm you and I say I'm sorry and do it again in five minutes, five years, I'm not really sorry. I just want to be forgiven. We need to turn from our sins. We need to change character to do that. We need to replace with God-empowered correct actions, right actions, the actions, attitudes, or thoughts that got us into trouble in the first place. We may need to make things right with others. We need, might need to apologize. We might need to forgive them. We might need to ask forgiveness. We might need to make restitution, if possible. A side note, this is impossible to do on long-term on our own strength. Many people white-knuckle it. Okay, I'm going to do this. I need to tell you, unless the Holy Spirit is working in us, it's not going to stick. We need this Holy Spirit working in us in order to accomplish real change. And all this depends on us coming to God. Back to our story. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So recall that Herodias, Antipas's, Antipas's wife, had a grudge against John the Baptist, but she couldn't get access to kill him. So she waited until an opportunity presented itself. A birthday party! What a great opportunity! Who was there? Herodias was not in the room. We see that Salome had to leave the room to go talk to her mother. Who was there? Antipas was there. Nobles, probably men. Military commanders, definitely men. And the leading men of Galilee, more men. And as we said, Herodias is not in the room. But her daughter Salome comes in. That Salome, that girl named Peace, and she comes in and dances. Without getting too graphic, it's probably not a waltz or a tap dance, right? It pleased Herod and these men. 
Antipas shows his gratitude and approval and offers a reward. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Salome grasps the magnitude of this opportunity, but she doesn't know how to use it. So she goes and asks Mama. She leaves the room. It doesn't take Herodias long to figure out what to do. She gives an answer, something she has waited for for a long time. She's been patient. She tells her daughter Salome, bring me the head of John the Baptist. Salome doesn't waste any time. She hurries back to the king. If she waits too long, the witnesses may have moved their attention elsewhere, or perhaps the influence of her seductive dance may have waned. She adds to her mother's request, the on the platter. She wants, doesn't want just the head, she wants it on a platter, and she wants it at once. She removes any wiggle room for her stepfather. I, I, I could bring a, his head on the platter, still a, uh, bring his head in, still attached to his body. I can postpone it, eventually you'll get it. No, she takes out all the guesswork. Antipas is trapped. His response? Well, he has a chance to follow God rather than man. He fails. He bows to peer pressure, not wanting to be seen to Welsh on an offer. But he's sad about it. That counts for something, right? He's very, very, very sad. His heart wanted to follow what he knew was right, but he had several problems. First, he put himself in a sinful environment. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. He had at his wedding sexy dancing. Some of us, myself included, are trying to lose weight. I like chocolate. Maybe some of you do too. Do we keep chocolate in our house? Or do we remove it from temptation? Some of us have problems with lust, yet we drive every day down streets that have billboards on it that we know we shouldn't be looking at. We could go another way. Some of us are trying to get rid of, of addictions, of issues with substances. Yet we still hang out with friends that we made 
when we were using. Maybe they still use. We need to guard our hearts, my friends. The second issue that Antipas has, he spoke unwisely, promising things that were dangerous. We see Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks to us about oaths. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And thirdly, he didn't have the conviction of God in his heart. He didn't have the conviction to follow through, even though he knew better. 2 Corinthians. I'm looking at chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, Antipas was aggrieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Do you see the difference? For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Sorrow isn't the point. Antipas was very sorry. But sorrow that leads to repentance, that's different. Finally, John the Baptist's disciples, they came and took his body and buried him. We heard David Bauman read today about John the Baptist, the prophecy of his coming, his conception, his mother's pregnancy and his birth. He had followers. He had family. He had friends. John had a powerful and important ministry. He was preparing for Christ. His friends, family, and followers, they came and got him. They were sad. They were sad at his death, no doubt about it. But John had been preparing the way for the Christ. He was fulfilling prophecy, but his ministry was done. We can learn what not to do from Herod Antipas, from his wife Herodias, and from their daughter, Salome. But there is a lesson for us here, very close to home, what to do. God is sovereign. He has a divine plan that we don't always understand. He brought John the Baptist into the world, and he used him mightily. When his ministry is done, 
even though his family, friends, and followers may not have agreed, God took John home. I can see them going, why, God, why? Probably through much tears and wondering and speculation by those that were left behind. But John was not sad after his death. This reminds me of a practical application for us. We had a beloved pastor, Pastor Rob. Rob was amazing. He was just the right man to pastor us at the right time. And we had powerful results. He changed many of us as God worked through him. Then God took Rob, and we are sad and wonder why God would do that. But God is sovereign. He knows what he is doing. On your bulletin at the front, we have Isaiah 46. I wonder if any of you read it as you came in. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We are now in a season without a senior pastor. God knows this, and he's not surprised. In fact, I propose that this is not an interim period where we're just trying to hang on until we get a senior pastor so that he can, we can start being guided again. We are in a tough time. We are in a crucible. God wants us to be right here. He wants us to be here when he provides the next senior pastor. Where can we be? I'm sorry, let me back up. We are in a crucible where we can be molded as a church and as individuals as God prepares us to be the congregation he wants us to be when we get our next senior pastor. This is not a hang-in-there-baby thing. Many of you who were around in the 70s remember that poster where there was a rope and a cat hanging on it, and the caption was, just hang in there, baby. That's not what we're supposed to be doing here. We're not just hanging on until the next pastor comes along. Instead, we are to be, as Paul says, or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is precious, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is forming us in the crucible of this season of our church. It's not an interim period between times of growth, but a season of growth and blessing as he forms us. We are more than conquerors through Christ. God is sovereign. We sang that about that in Psalm 21 today, 
He is our keeper. God is our helper. He is our molder. In conclusion, we see that Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias made a series of bad choices. Antipas especially was torn, one foot wanting God and the other foot following his culture and his desires. He was very sorry, but in the end, unless sorrow leads to repentance, it doesn't count for anything with eternal value. In fact, the gospel was not designed to teach us how to act so that we can have happiness and success in the world. That is often a byproduct, but the purpose of the good news of Jesus the Christ is to show us how to submit to God and to gain eternal life with him. Antipas couldn't even follow the Mosaic law. Jesus tells us to love one another. Both of these actions have one thing in common, surprisingly. There is no eternal value in these actions alone, without repentance and trust in Christ. What? To be clear, I am not saying that Christ's teachings about loving one another are not important. In fact, earlier in this sermon, I exhorted each of us to step out and help our, by loving each other during this season. We have a meal train for the Sachs family as they're preparing for their next child. But it's not just meals. If you heard the announcement, there's opportunities to come alongside to help them with things like childcare, um, straightening out some things, cleaning, fellowshipping them while you bring a meal. There's many things on, on that list. That's an opportunity. Invite someone that you don't know very well. Go out for coffee. Bring them over to your place. Brent talked about new ministries. We've solicited new ministries, and they're starting to come in. You can be involved in a new ministry. Yes, everybody's busy. I get that. But as we start doing these one another's, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. What I'm saying is that all these things are good things. We need to be doing that as we're moving along in this crucible that we are in right now, being changed. But all these actions are just actions, and they're not eternally valuable in themselves. They are commands of how we are to live, the result of the changes in us when we, we repent from our sins and trust Christ. No one can earn their way to heaven by doing good deeds, even those taught by Christ. Heaven comes from repentance, agreeing with God, and turning from our sin and accepting the payment and lordship of Christ. Then the fruit of our salvation, our sanctification, will be our actions in loving one another. Make sure your relationship with God is based on repentance and trust in Christ. Then enjoy ministering to one another. Pray with me. Holy God, we come before you keenly aware of our need for you. We have fallen short in our actions and attitudes. We, 
like Herod Antipas, are very sorry. But unlike him, we want to let your word go deep into our souls and change us. Convict us with your Holy Spirit and change us, bringing us to you in thought, feelings, and actions. That we can be cleansed and regenerated in you and empowered to live the life you want for us. Amen.